Welcome to Grading the Nutmeg, the podcast of Connecticut history, brought to you by the State Historian and Connecticut Explored, the magazine of Connecticut history. I'm Walt Woodward. This time of year, what could be better than a sunset cruise down the Connecticut River? And the best way to do that has got to be on a 400-year-old yacht in the company of a great storyteller, some really talented students, and a million or so of your favorite swallows. Come with me to the Connecticut River Museum in Essex for an amazing excursion on the Onrust. It's one of those early fall Indian summer afternoons when the sun is just gorgeous and the scenery of Connecticut is truly a sight to behold. And I have the pleasure of being at one of the most beautiful places in Connecticut right now. I'm in Essex. I'm down on the banks of the Connecticut River, looking out the windows of the Connecticut River Museum through the window of Executive Director Chris Dobbs, who's sitting right across from me. Hi, Chris. How you doing? Well, I'm doing great. It's terrific to have you here. This time of year is just a perfect time to be at the museum or come to the museum. I've been here about four years, and during that time, I have to say, I don't know a bad time of year to be on the banks of the Connecticut River. Uh, at this time of year, during the fall, you get the fall foliage. We have the swallows uh, hanging out, particularly at night, coming in and just mesmerizing us with what they do during the winter. You get the ice flows and the eagles. Uh, it really is just an incredible place. And this particular year, you've got a special treat for people who come to visit the museum, which we historians are as especially excited about. What's sitting there on the dock right outside your window? Well, I have to say, I was salivating about this when I even was thinking about it. And when we actually got it here, I was absolutely thrilled and blown away. It's a recreation of Adrian Bloch's, of course, the intrepid explorer. Uh, it's a recreation of his 1614 era vessel. It's called the Onrust, or Onrust, uh, if you want to be a little more Dutch about it. it the name itself uh, means um, restless or unrest, and you know, in many ways, that's certainly what the time period was, an era of unrest. Bloch was the first European explorer that we know of to sail up the Connecticut River and then go back and write about it. Is that correct? That's correct. That's correct. Um, following in the wake of Henry Hudson, uh, Bloch ends up being sent by the Dutch government to, for four expeditions to the northeast of America. Uh, on his last expedition, 1613-1614, he ends up having his vessel, the Tiger, burn off of Manhattan Island. His crew ends up uh, salvaging parts of it. They build what's considered to be the first yacht. Um, we can talk about that later if you want, but they build what's considered to be the first yacht in North America, uh, and they christen it the Onrust. And from there, he uh, during the spring of 1614, he and the remainder of his crew, which is another story, part of the crew mutinies along the way, but those who are left end up going through the East River into Long Island Sound, charting Long Island Sound, uh, yeah, looking at Block all Island the different is ports. named after Adrian Block. That's right, right in his honor. Um, so he ends up being able to see all sorts of things, really for the first time for Euro from European perspective, going through Long Island Sound, up 
as many tributaries as possible, including our very own Connecticut River. And what time of year did he come into the river? You know, he ends up doing it in April of 1614, uh, and it's amazing to think that that's during the middle of the spring freshet. And he actually writes in his journal about uh, the amount of water gushing out of the Connecticut River. Sure, that's because all the ice from the winter snows along the whole 410-mile river system are now flowing out to the sound. That's exactly it. You have all that uh, snow uh, up in Vermont, New Hampshire, even up into Canada goes the watershed. So it's a monstrous watershed, and it's all emptying into the Connecticut River and then going out into Long Island Sound. Now, do you think that's why he didn't name it the Connecticut, right? What do you call it? Yeah, you know what? There are several different names. Uh, the Fresh River, uh, I, I won't even try to pronounce the Dutch for it. Um, he also writes the Native American uh, version, and of course it's been anglicized to Connecticut, yeah. um, meaning long tidal river, but really he was looking at it as the Fresh River for all the water that, that it was ejecting into Long Island and, Sound. And fresh actually is one of those words that in the time period, certainly for the English, it meant fast running. Fresh was something that flowed very swiftly. Correct. It makes me think Correct. that uh, he must have had quite an adventure trying to sail up the river during the spring freshet. Yeah, you know, uh, the Onrus is specifically designed for this type of purpose. Uh, yachts uh, were shallow draft. Uh, this uh, only draws about four and a half feet of water. Uh, it has lee boards, which make it look a little peculiar. Uh, uh, what is a lee board? So lee board looks like a fin of a fish. Uh, and in this case, it has one on one side and one on the other, the, the port and the starboard side. And depending on how you're tacking uh, and the direction of the wind, you can put down one uh, lee board or the other, and it helps to steady you, like a keel would. Um, but in this case, it really doesn't have much of a keel. It's almost flat-bottomed. So it allows you really to get into those tight areas, those tributaries, uh, be able to explore, do exactly what he was doing. And that's what Dutch yachts were originally intended for, was exploration, uh, spying, uh, as well as a lot of merchants could use them because, again, you could get right into shallow water. And in fact, what the Dutch did, unlike the English, the English often had very deep keeled vessels, um, but they had deep ports. Uh, in the Netherlands, you have all of these shallow uh, bays that you can go right to, and then if you beach it basically right before high tide, and as the water starts to drain out, you can actually be able to create your own wharf by just putting down planks. So the Dutch were kind of masters of this shallow water exploration. They were. In ways that the English couldn't, because one of the things the English complained about is the sandbar at the mouth of the Connecticut River, that's right? That's right, that's right. And that certainly would have kept, uh, that moving sandbar at the mouth of the river would have kept a, a lot of English vessels out from the Connecticut River. Uh, but here, Block, particularly in his onrust, was able to be able to go right up to just north of Hertford. Now, just north of Hertford, you end up getting the infield rapids, uh, and so that's about as far as he's able to get. One of the things that also makes uh, the Dutch, and particularly block of interest, I think, to us historians, is the fact that you know, the Dutch were very interested in the Native Americans because they were seeing them as trade partners. The English often were coming in, and while there might have been a certain amount of trade, they were also really looking at the land as something that they wanted to take, whereas block 
intentionally was on his charts and what really makes him famous when he goes back to the Netherlands is that he's identifying all the Native American groups that he's finding along the way. Good ports, uh, good trade partners, and he's writing that down. So I know historians great, still look great at that information. first map as kind of the best indicator of what's going on along the river. Yeah. Yeah, so it's just it's just incredible to see what's going on and to be able to read his description, which in some ways, you know, one of the things that I think is so nice when you come to the Connecticut River Museum is from our vantage point, when you look out to Old Lyme, Old Lyme has done such a remarkable job with their land trusts and preservation that you really almost get a sense of what the river might have looked like. So you're saying when you look across when you the look, river, when you Old Lyme is on the other Old side, Lime right? From the Connecticut River Museum, yeah, it's on the other side of the museum. And when you're actually able to go on board the Onrust, and we do cruises aboard her, both for the general public as well as groups. Uh, and, you, and you'll be doing that this year till when? So this year we'll do it until. Uh, October 14th, uh, and it appears that she's going to come back to us next spring. And so throughout late spring, summer, and fall again in 2018, we'll be lucky enough to have the onrust here. So this is just perfect. If you want to get the full, you know, leaf peeper autumn foliage treatment, you come down this year until October 14th. And if you miss it, then next year you make plans to come spring, summer, fall, right? That's right. And best yet, please, you know, we hope that people come both times. You know, come come this fall, be able to enjoy it this and then fall bring friends next year. And then year. bring friends next year. So, so let me see yeah. if I can spice this up. You know, when I hear the word yacht, I think mahogany, I think piano <laughs> playing in the background, and a, a guy in a tuxedo is standing there with a martini. Is that what we're going to find on the onrust? You know, I'm glad you asked that question. No, you're not going to find that. You're, you're going to find a cannon. Uh, in fact, she has six reproduction cannon, which we we do fire off periodically. So that sometimes That's is part of the exciting. experience. Yeah. Uh, you end up finding a gorgeous figurehead of a lion. Uh, you go below deck, and she really is a floating museum. There are all sorts of artifacts associated uh, with really Block's story that we have below deck. And the Honorus project that put her together did an amazing job really thinking that through. So, for example, uh, you can go to the galley that she has. It's unlike any galley I think you've probably ever seen. Uh, it has tile work from the 1590s that they imported uh, from Belgium, which was These part are of the actual Nether 1590? These are actually 1590 wow. era tiles. So there's a fireplace below deck uh, that you can be able to see. Um, you know, there's charts and other navigational equipment, much of it reproduction, so that we can be able to talk about what Block was doing and allow visitors, both young and old, to be able to kind of explore it and follow um, along with, you know, be so, that intrepid explorer themselves. So visitors not only get the, the experience of riding in this original European boat that came up the river, but they also can go down below decks and see the museum and the the artifacts? They can go down below, see the artifacts. Uh, most mornings until she leaves, uh, we have interpreters who are on board her, usually from 10 to 1 o'clock in the afternoon. And so visitors, general visitors, can come see the museum, all three floors of it, which do, I think, a very great job of telling all 410 miles of the story over 
hundreds of years, uh, but then they can be able to go out onto our docks, see the onrust, uh, get on border, talk to the interpreters, go below deck, uh, really enjoy it, and then if they want to, they can come back in the afternoons, and typically at this time of year, we're doing two to three cruises a day uh, aboard or in the afternoons. We've talked so much about the onrust because it's such a special vessel and it's got such great associations with the river, but I don't want to leave or I don't want to go down to the boat without talking about the museum. This too is an incredibly special place. For people who've never been here before, how do you tell the history of the river? Sure. Well. If you go to the first floor, the first floor is really the big stories, uh, big local stories uh, to us. So you end up finding about the turtle, the American Revolutionary War submarine, the, the first submarine used in combat. We have two reproductions, one that you can actually get into and kind of get a sense of what it'd be like uh, in this Revolutionary War uh, artifact. And then there's actually one in our boathouse on the first floor that was floated and proved that Bushnell's theories and technology actually worked. You mean it actually went underwater? It actually went underwater during the bicentennial. So wow. up to the bicentennial, folks were thinking, well, did this turtle really exist? Was, was Bushnell really being upfront on what he tried to do? Uh, and sure enough, they pieced together a number of letters between Bushnell, who designed it and, and tested it, and George Washington and Thomas Jefferson and a whole bunch of others around that time period by piecing together all those because this was top secret. This was not a project that you put into the newspaper that you were doing. This was uh, something that uh, you could have been executed for by the British government. So they, they didn't want anybody to know about it and they wanted, and it was only going to work if it was a surprise attack. So we have that story uh, on the first floor. There's the British raid on Essex. Uh, 27. That vessels. was in the War of 1812. That's during right? the War yeah. of 1812. Thank you. Yeah, that's during the War of 1812. Is uh, the British raid on Essex and 27 vessels. Many of them were privateers, which was one of the ways the young United States government was fighting a, a naval battle was we didn't have enough naval ships so we ended up recruiting privateers with their own private vessels to go out uh, and be able to attack the British so the British got tired of that and ended up coming up to what had been called Petapog at the time uh, which was Essex and burning the vessels here trying to take actually two of the two of the best ones back with them they ended up finding problems along the way, and long story short, ended up having to burn them, kind of sacrifice them to the Part of the problems, right, were people shooting at them from the shore. Yeah. They been told that. Well, that's right. That's right. So it was a surprise attack uh, during the middle of the night. Uh, again, I don't know why, you know, they always decide to come up in April, um, but uh, I think partly because they figured that the folks in Petapog were not expecting a surprise attack in April. Uh, they come up end up uh, taking 136 marines and sailors uh, in the, these long boats. They, they come right off of where the museum is today. They fire right, your site is. Right where our site right is, where is where ground zero the, for yeah. the landing. Yeah. Uh, they fire a couple of warning shots. There's a handful of militia that fire back and then realize, oh my gosh, we're outnumbered by these, these trained soldiers and sailors. So they scurry away, kind of doing the alarm for the around the area 
in the in the meantime, uh, the British tell the townspeople, look, we're not here to burn your town, uh, to hurt any of you. We're just here for one thing, and that's your shipping. Uh, so they, they, they come, they, they burn as many of the ships as they can. Uh, they end up uh, going to the West Indies warehouse, which is, was right across from the museum today. There's a little red boat house there, uh, which is actually on the foundation of the West Indies warehouse. And they stove in the rum. Um, there was a, a nice, great piece of folklore that said, the British came and stole our rum. And it really was, they stove in the rum because the officers didn't want their men drinking while they were here and maybe getting rowdy or not doing their job. So they came, they they So they destroyed empty, the they rum destroyed supply, the rum to, supply protect the to protect the citizenry. Likely story. Yeah, right. They probably took some of it along the way. Um, anyway, uh, it's a great story. And by the time the next morning rolls about, they're trying to leave. They end up getting uh, stuck actually on a sandbar uh, in the middle of the Connecticut River as they're trying to take these two vessels away with them. By this point, uh, the militias have started gathering along either side of the river. Uh, they're starting to shoot at them. Of course, the British are shooting back. Um, a couple of the British end up getting wounded and killed uh, because of this. And they wait in the middle of the river until the next night. And at, during the next night, they get back in their boats and they allow the current to take them right down in the dead of night. The Americans are aware that they're trying to sneak out. They light bonfires, but they still really can't see them. Uh, but they, they do bonfires along the shores and the British eventually get right down to Saybrook and get back onto their vessels and go away. You don't just tell these early stories. You bring the Connecticut River right up to the present. We do. So, I mean, those are just two of the stories on the first floor. Uh, many other stories on the first floor. You go up to the second floor, uh, and again, we are located in the last surviving steamboat dock and warehouse on the river. So it's an 1878 building. Uh, in itself, it's our biggest it's artifact. It's an elegant building. It's beautiful. It is. It is. And, you know, it still has the hatches to bring up cargo all the way up to the third floor. Uh, and sometimes we do. We'll bring up boats up to the third floor for an exhibit or something. So when you go up to the second floor, uh, you'll really see life along the river uh, and industry. And so that's largely what the focus of the second floor is. Uh, and there's a little bit, bit of environmental history as well there, both how the river was uh, formed, but also the degradation, particularly in the 19th and 20th century of the river, and what we like to refer to now as the Comeback River. Well, and that's one of the nice things about being a museum about the river. It has so many different facets you can talk about, the environment, the, the, the environmental history and sort of the environmental changes over time the way it's become a place of great recreation and how the contemporary 20th and 21st century yachting society found and used the river. Right now you've got a great art exhibit up on the third floor, don't you? We do, and the third floor is a changing exhibit uh, floor for us. So typically about three times a year we'll change it out and sometimes it's uh, an art show, sometimes it's on environmental issues of the river, um, other times it has to do with some great um, history. Uh, and there is so much, when you talk about 400 
410 miles. Or as a few have said, really 820 because it's 410 up one side and 410 down the other. Uh, it goes through so many different towns. With Even today, there are t over 2 million people who live in the watershed. There are a lot of stories to this river and to this river valley. And that's one of the, I think, one of the important things for us to be able to share with folks uh, and one of the endless roots of possibilities because you can go in so many different directions when you have that many people who have called it home for, for centuries. Well, and here's the exciting thing for me, or one of the exciting things mm -hmm. for me. We are about to leave your office and go down and board the yacht on Rust. No piano bar, I'm sorry folks. <laughs> but on there will also be a great storyteller, right? Yeah, for the last uh, three plus years, we've worked with uh, Stephen Gincarella, a phenomenal folklorist from the University of Massachusetts Amherst. Uh, he's been working for us, collecting stories up and down the river, and we're gonna hear a few of those tonight. And in about a year and a half, two years from now, we're looking at actually having one of our changing exhibits be on myths and legends of the Connecticut River Valley. And that'll be a traveling show. So it'll start off here, and then it's gonna make its way up and down the river. That's really uh, exciting. So we'll get a little glint of that tonight. Well, I just can't wait. I'm, you know, I'm kind of like a kid. I get to meet the skipper, I get to hear Steve's stories, and uh, maybe we'll even get to talk to some of the people on board the boat. So off to the yacht. Off we go. <laughs> Moments later, we've stepped out to the dock and on to the onrust as Skipper Dan welcomes aboard 20 students from the Lyme Academy College of Fine Arts, folklore Steve Jancarella and Chris and I. Again, my name is Dan, that's Ginger and Rodrigo. We're gonna go see some swallows, eat some vegetables. And if you have any questions, please let us know. I've had the And that's our official departure from the dock with a conch shell. So very good job, Ginger. <laughs> so welcome everyone. Once we're on our way down this stunningly beautiful lower Connecticut River, I get a chance to talk with Ginger Steiner about the onrust and her experience as a crew member this summer. My name is Ginger Steiner. And Ginger, you are on the staff at the Connecticut River Museum. But this summer, you've had a special job kind of offshore or sort of an amphibious job, haven't you? Yes, I actually started at the Connecticut River Museum in July and started as the senior crew aboard the Onrust. And I'm continuing that career after the boat leaves in October. We've had a great inaugural summer. It was the first, um, first season of Onrust being here and it was very well received. People are so interested in the direct connection that the boat has to the history of the Connecticut River. And what know. surprises them the most when they're out on the boat? I think the beauty of the 17th century sailing experience. You know, you see all of these beautiful power boats and powering through the river and, you know, doing the water sports and that is a fun aspect that we enjoy living so close to the water, but to be able Able to experience it the same way that the first Europeans did when they came here, I think resonates really well with people and is very special to them. You know, I think a lot of people's experience of the river, unless they are boaters, has been 
on one of the cruise boats, like the Lady Catherine, which, you know, it's a great experience and you can have a lot of fun with it. But this is fundamentally different, isn't it? Yeah. So how would you describe the difference between saying seeing the river on a on a tour boat and being aboard this vessel, this yacht? So even though yacht means that it's a it's a fast and maneuverable boat, clearly she's not nearly as fast and maneuverable as the other vessels, uh, the, the modern vessels. I think that when you take it slow, you notice a lot more about the river. You see all of the marsh grasses, you see the eagles, you're able to identify the different types of birds. You start questioning things about the river, like what would Adrian Block have done right now when the wind and the tide are opposing each other? You know, oh, he might have anchored and taken a small boat out to go chart the, the nearby lands and stuff. You know, I think that people are able to interpret the river in a different way than they would be able to otherwise. So it's more of a intimate experience with the river itself. Yeah, yeah, I definitely think that. Yep. Uh, you know, there's the when you look at this boat, it's just it's wood everywhere and these thick, you know, lines. Uh, Tar on the deck. <laughs> yeah, it's just it, it really is a beautiful, beautiful thing. And I'm told that below decks, it's like a like a 17th century museum down there. Yes, it's highly authentic. I, I hope you get a chance to go down there. There's a 16th century fireplace, and all of the building of this vessel was done with thorough research from archaeological finds of Dutch vessels at the time. So that is something that is really neat, that you walk down below and you're like, this is the exact type of hearth that they were cooking with. You know, people look and they're like, why would there be an open hearth on a boat, on a wooden boat with gunpowder and stuff, you know? And it's like, this is but the technology. Eat, right? Yeah, this is yeah. the technology that they had. And so to even just that one artifact, I think really transports people back into the time and they can see that this is exactly what would have been on the ship. Even the fire plate that is on there. It's a Dutch design. It's very full of uh, pride for the recent independence that they gained at the time. Um, and I, I think it really helps to transport people back into that um, that experience. You know? you know, one of the most important things this boat does, I think, is remind people that although everyone now, I think everyone now recognizes that this land belonged to the indigenous people, the native people, for thousands of years before any Europeans came, I think a lot of people assume that the English were the first people to arrive. and. This, this yacht reminds us that the Dutch were here first, mm -hmm. that they, they laid claim to the same land the English did, and that while, you know, while the, the Europeans, while the English and the Indians were tussling for who would control the land, the English and the Dutch were tussling for who would control the land, too. So yeah. this was a very complicated world in the 1600s. Absolutely. And I think it goes, um, it's different for every tribe, every fort, every Dutch fort, you know, it's hard to say that the Dutch had better relationships with the natives. Overall, I think they did. Um, you know, and that goes back to the Dutch business model that anybody could invest in a business back in the Netherlands, even a servant girl, as long as they had the coin to invest in the business, they could do it. And so I think when they came over here, it was no surprise to them that the natives were like, I want to trade evenly. I want you to pay me for this land because this is my family's land. And I don't know if the English relations were the same as that. I, I've heard that there was a lot more of just taking. But then, of course, you know, 
this tribe might have not ha uh, had a good trade with this Dutch fort, you know. Are there any particular voyages or experiences or moments that you've had this summer on the Onrus that stand out to you as, you know, you're, these are going to be the ones you think about during those cold winter nights? <laughs> yeah, you know, I think so. I, I think there several come to mind immediately. It's always awe-inspiring to sail past Joshua's Rock. You know, that magnificent geological formation is just, it, it's awe-inspiring, you know, that you're just sailing along and you're at the deepest part of the channel at that point, about 51 feet, and you're able to just get so close and see this big looming rock up above. It, it really is iconic to New England in, in our environment. And then the swallows have been amazing with the murmurations that they do. Uh, it really makes you appreciate the fact that no major city was developed on this lower river so that we do still have such conserved land which is important for the for the swallows and everything coming into the marshes. That's beautiful. Now, and is then, this murmuration of the swallows, is that something that's relatively new, or has that been going on? It's been going on for hundreds, if not thousands of years. That's amazing. Because and then I have to compliment on Rust on how well she sails, which I am a traditional sailor, so I'm not a modern boat sailor, but compared to some of the other boats that I sail that regularly, like a schooner saw, you know, eight knots. One day we were sailing on rust and it, she was just on a good point of sail. The wind wasn't even particularly strong and she hit 7.7 .7 knots. That's and it was amazing. like, you go on rust, yeah. you know? And it gives you an appreciation too for the fact that people just might assume that these boats are just slow and lumbering, but these people were excellent mariners. They knew exactly how to make their boat go, you know? And this boat has been built as closely as they could to an authentic 17th century Dutch sailing yacht, is that right? Yes, yes. So you feel really comfortable that when it hit that, what, 6.8 or 7.8, that that really mimics what the Onrust itself might have done. Yes, yes. And in fact, this boat is was built about 10% larger than the original probably was, simply to fit things like a, a closed engine compartment which is required for the Coast Guard certification. Um, so this boat is actually heavier than what the original Onrus would have been because of those tanks and the engine and the generator and that lead laying compartment that we have. It's heavier. So we're just placing, we're pushing more water. That's so I have, amazing. Yeah, so I have no doubt that the original Onrus would have been able to hit that speed So it that would have been a speedy well. little vessel. That's, yeah, yacht, yeah, you know, great. fast, maneuverable. So yeah. next year you think you'll come back again and do the Onrus? Oh yes, I hope that the partnership continues for many years. Yes. I think it's an important chapter of the river story to tell. While we made our way downriver to where the swallows gather at sunset, University of Massachusetts professor and folklorist Stephen Jencarella mesmerized all aboard with folk tales from the lower river valley, including this one about the river's own sea serpent. I'm going to come back to the theme of hidden treasure when we're heading up the river here, but I want to share uh, at least two more stories before we move up. Now, one of, the, one of the major kind of stories that we have in New England folklore is of a creature called the Great New England Sea Serpent. 
It is seen as early as 1641. It's reported by an English traveler by the name of John Jocelyn. He reports that stories are being told of a, of a sea serpent that is lurking nowhere near the Connecticut River, but that is up really in the Gulf of Maine. And what we find is from the 1600s into the 1800s, there's really a great deal of activity up in that Gulf of Maine, north of, 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 uh, of Massachusetts, right, where there's a belief that there's, a, there's an enormous sea serpent out there. It shouldn't surprise any of us that these stories of sea serpents get told because very often fishermen, you got to think about what's happened in the 1600s, 1700s, even the early 1800s, where people are going out to sea, they may never come home. And so you have both, this is the folklorist in me doing some interpretation, you have both a projection of people's fears and also a way of dealing with, in narrative, the kind of anxieties and the way of making somebody's death heroic. If your, if your husband went out to sea and never came home, maybe it wasn't just because of storm took him down, maybe it was because he was died valiantly fighting the sea serpent. So these sea serpent stories are really rooted in New England culture, they're rooted in maritime culture, but what we find is that they, they really are some questions as to whether this creature can exist or not. In 1817, the Linnaean Society of Boston right, reportedly discovers a sea serpent washed ashore in Massachusetts, and it turns out, of course, not to be a sea serpent, but if I'm not mistaken, it's kind of a... a, a, a a black snake that is suffering from cancer and it had a kind of deformity of course when it's in the water it, it waterlogged from there. But lo and behold when the first tourist industry begins around the area around Nahant, uh, Massachusetts, the sea serpent starts getting spotted in the early 1800s there and by the time the tourist industry is in full-fledged force in this area would you believe it that the sea serpent starts showing up in Long Island Sound and in and around this area? 1886, the sea serpent is spotted in the Hudson River. It's reported in the New York Times. And there's no way in hell New Englanders are going to let New Yorkers have our beloved sea serpent. <laughs> so would you believe that only a few days after the sea serpent is spotted in, in the Hudson River, it's spotted here in the Connecticut River. Far up in Middletown, near Middletown, there's reportedly two men going over a boat, right, very quietly going over a boat, and it gets bumped, it gets bumped, their boat flies into the air, lands into the water, right? And as they look underneath, they see the great body of the serpent coming. It lifts its head, and one of the things that we find about the sea serpent is that as the stories are told over hundreds of years, it starts getting bigger and bigger. It goes from a 25-foot beast to a 50-foot beast, and by the time it's spotted up in Middletown, it's a 100-foot-long monster. Its eyes go from kind of small plates to large dinner <laughs> plates and its head goes from something that would be a small barrel to a gigantic barrel of a head right from there. That's what's spotted in 1886. If you follow through, one of the men who, who encounter this who, and when the reports are made, one of the men who sees this and swears he saw the monster is a man by the name of Silas Sage. You pull a little bit more and you find out that there was a Silas Sage who lived in Middletown and he died a few months before the story was actually told. So, 1886, 1886, we have our first spotting of the sea serpent in the Connecticut River. 1888, right out over there, 
we have a captain coming back from Block Island, returning here, and he stopped in his tracks, or whatever the, the maritime right, version of that would be, is stopped because he sees this enormous creature leaving or entering into the Connecticut River from Long Island Sound, moving its way up that way. And in 1898, a delicious version is told. We can't quite see Long Island from here, but if we we're a little further down, particularly on a night like tonight, you'd see Long Island. There's a place on Long Island called Artist Lake, right? It's about mid-island. And its gorgeous story is told. Again, it appears in the New York Times and it appears in places like the Hartford Current and all these others, of people who see, who are out and about the Connecticut River, and they see this monstrous creature moving down the Connecticut River into Long Island Sound, making its way heading towards Long Island. The story picks up in Long Island when, right, there are people who notice Right, on the shore, right, a groove, a massive groove in the land right, that is clearly the body of this beast has come out of the water and is moving its way into Artist Lake. One man claims to have encountered the beast. It raises its head out of the water right, and goes back down. His horse is frozen right, from, the sign, from the sight of it. But it cannot is paralyzed until it comes up the second time. The second time, according to the story, it lifts its head up even higher and winks at the man <laughs> and then disappears into the waters again, at which point the horse takes off and running. And in the morning, they see a V now is formed. So where you had the body coming in, right, cutting into the ground, you see the tracks going out from Artist Lake back into Long Island Sound. And sure enough, a few days later, people report that they see the creature coming back, lurking over here. The sea serpent disappears, right, for some time. By the 1920s, there aren't many stories told about the sea serpent. And I mention this in part because it really is a piece of competition for the tourist market. From the 1880s to 1920s, all of the, when this is really a resort area, lots of places advertise that you should, you know, come to our place because we'll have the best shad bakes, we'll have the best clam bakes, and we have the best place to see the sea serpent. So it's intimately bound into our understandings of the tourist industry. What well, kind of disappears for some time, but we're starting to see a reemergence of sea serpent stories. And I don't know if any of you remember, but a couple of years ago, there were some strange creatures that washed up on Montauk and some strange creatures that washed up over in New London. There was also something odd that was seen in the West Hartford Reservoir. And so these stories kind of got people talking again, right? And lo and behold, in the local area, if you talk to like my, my good friend Wick Griswold, right? Lo and, who's a professor of, uh, really is a, who's a river rat, but and I say that with all admiration, but he's also a professor at the University of Hartford. But, Rick, but, but Wick is often kayaking on the river and he'll tell you that lots of stories being told of our good friend, has a name now, it's Connie. Connie, the, the Connecticut River sea serpent from there. There we go. Those are three stories of the immediate area. Thank you for listening. As the sun sank lower and lower, it seemed our hopes for seeing an evening swallow show might not be realized. Almost apologetically, museum director Dobbs passed around some pictures and described what we would unfortunately miss. We should be seeing a lovely black cloud like that. Uh, you can even pass this around if you want, but the birds, when they are here, the swallows are just amazing 
to, wow. to look at. Well, this is probably the best place to see the swallows, and it's a murmuration. Uh, scientists don't fully understand why they do it, but they'll do it in the mornings, but rarely are people out in the mornings, and they'll do it in the evening, usually right about now, and you, but you'll often see them just start to swoop down. You'll see them first a few over the water, then they'll be up in the sky, and before you know it, they all are coming from all different directions. You'll see a black cloud, and the best time I can remember seeing it, it's called a murmuration. They come in, they'll do this dance where they're spinning around, it's all these spirals. They'll go down into the tall grasses, go back up, uh, and then usually right about now, as soon as the sun starts to truly set, you'll see them just cascade down like a waterfall right into the tall grasses. When a day is truly magic, it stays magic. Moments before darkness fell, some keen-eyed art students saw the swallows gathering above us. Where? <laughs> the little black dots in the sky. Look, at Look straight that way. Oh, my God. It just went over us. Isn't that cool? Yeah, they're getting a little Look closer. Look at that. Yeah. Oh, no, we're got This is great. Oh, that's awesome. Look at yeah, look at that. I don't know. Oh, yeah, look at that. Oh, my God. That's crazy. There you go. As the onrust made its way back to the docks of the Connecticut River Museum in near darkness, Stephen Gencarella told more stories, and all of us knew this would be a day to remember. You can come make your own on Rust memory now through October 14th at the Connecticut River Museum in Essex. Thanks for listening. We wish to thank Chris Dobbs, Stephen Gencarella, Gretchen Steiner, Skipper Dan, and Carol and the students from the Lyme Academy College of Fine Arts. Hear more great Connecticut stories by subscribing to the Grading the Nutmeg podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or gradingthenutmeg at lipsign.com. And for great Connecticut history delivered to your home or office four times a year, subscribe to Connecticut Explored at ctexplored.org. This episode was narrated and produced by Walt Woodward.